Thank you, Joseph, John, Rebecca, thank you for leading us. Um, welcome again to Midtown 12 South. Welcome to those joining us online, uh, live streaming. Um, I, I wanted to just reiterate something that Daryl said in the call to worship or in the announcements uh, and, and say it again and just uh, let you know that the joy of, of the leadership here, the joy of the staff here, the joy of the elders here, uh, we are so glad that it is opening back up. I cannot tell you the the, the bliss of, of hearing this room sing again and, and to see faces that I haven't seen in a year, uh, to, to know that, um, that, that we're coming back is a joy. However, it is also a joy that is, um, uh, will we'll, we'll be stunted for a little bit. We will not be able to fully welcome all of our people back in until we have somewhere to take our children downstairs. Uh, you can look around and see there are not a whole lot of uh, babies to elementary school students around you uh, because we, those parents uh, need sanity. And so they need a place to take their children uh, while they worship. So our families are not back yet. And I long for our families that are watching at home. I long for them to be back. And an enormous roadblock to that is having a volunteer army uh, to, to get our Kittown Children's Ministry off the ground again. So you will get one of these sheets when we leave. But as I, as I welcome you here and say, hey, it's so good to see you, um, but I miss so many other of our other people. Um, so would you help in bringing them back uh, to, to give your time away uh, to places like Kid Town and, and greeting teams and worship? We, we need it. So um, another plug. You'll, you'll keep hearing it until you feel enough shame. And you'll just, you'll do it. Um, but anyway, uh, welcome. We are, we are in the middle of a sermon series on the book of Philippians. We are uh, seven weeks into this, studying this epistle. This was written by Paul. Paul wrote this epistle while he was in prison to the church at Philippi, and it's been known throughout the centuries as Paul's epistle of joy. Seemingly every line, seemingly every paragraph takes the reader, takes the listener to a deeper experience of joy. And so you can kind of know that in your mind, okay, Philippians is a path to joy. Philippians is trying to lead me to deeper joy. The problem with that or what you will see, the resistance you will, you will face when you read it on your own um, is that Paul's path to joy is not the path that I want it to be. <laughs> That we want our path to joy to be the path that says when you accomplish more, when you achieve more, when you master more, when you do more, when you get to the top of the ladder, you will experience more joy. But for the Christian in the kingdom of God and for Paul in Philippians, he says actually the Christian doesn't find their joy by doing more, achieving more, being more, mastering more. The Christian finds their joy by dying more, by losing more, by getting to the bottom of the ladder. And so Paul's path to joy is painful because it's not, it's not the path to joy that we want. And, and he says this over and over again. It's seemingly in every single paragraph he's leading the listener to say, hey, if you want more and more joy, if you want a deeper experience of joy, you're going to have to lose some things. You're going you're gonna to have to loosen your death grip on things that you've committed to. You, not everyone else. You, things that you have said in your heart. If I had this or if my life was this way, then it would be more joyful. And Paul's saying, hey, the path to joy doesn't come by holding on to more, it comes by losing more. So we're calling our sermon series on Philippians Winning by Losing, the path to joy in Philippians. And so we're looking at different things each week that Paul is leading us to lose in order that we might gain more of the joy of Jesus. So we've been talking about many things to lose and then we're gonna look at another one today. But to read for you 11 verses uh, on the path to joy, what we might lose, but it might be difficult to, when we read this, for you to go, all right, what is, what, are, what is this passage talking about losing? I don't really get it. And 
one of the pastors at Midtown here this week said, this passage, trying to pull the, the path to joy out of this passage feels a lot like having the huge bin of Legos and you're trying to find like the one helmet for the space guy and you're like, where is this thing? Like, that's what this is gonna feel like. Like, I'm gonna read it and you're gonna go, how is that a path to joy? Don't worry, I have found the space helmet, okay? And I will, I'll, I'll show you, it, it will make sense, but you're gonna read it first and go, I don't really see how this is a path to joy. What, what's he leading us to? So bear with us. But we are in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 19. It'll be on the screen so you can turn your Bibles. Uh, this will wrap up chapter two for us in our study. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, distressed because, oh sorry, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord and with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. So a strange passage, certainly a strange passage to preach on, to try to uh, see the path to joy here. What was just read was a very common part of letters in the first century. When people would write letters, epistles, across the world, across the Mediterranean to each other, they would always include sections like this. It's in every letter of Paul, what's known as his travel log, meaning, hey, recipients of this letter, I've written to you about Jesus, I've written to you about how I'm doing, I've written to you about what I'm calling you to do, I need to take a minute and tell you what I plan on doing next. I'm telling you what my plan is, these are my travel plans, these are my my friends travel plans. Prepare to hear, prepare to meet my friends, Timothy and Epaphroditus. I'm sending them to you. This is like, you know, sending someone your flight info. Like, hey, this is when they land and this is the, the, the flight time and you need to be prepared for this. I'm telling you the travel plans. Paul does this in every letter. I'm sending so-and-so to you and here's why I'm sending them to you. And also, I hope to see you again. He does this all the time. So why, why are we studying the travel log, the details of Paul's travel, and what does it have to do with our path to joy? Well, if you've been around for the last three weeks, we started our study of chapter two a few weeks ago, and chapter two has gone like this. This is the progression of chapter two that the travel log fits very well in. So the beginning of chapter two, Paul says, hey, Philippian church, I wanna lead you on how to be a beautiful community. I wanna lead you on how to be a people that doesn't think about their own interest, but puts aside their own needs for the interest of others and says to other people, hey, you're more important than I am. That's what it would mean to be the church, to be a beautiful community where the world would look at you and go, what is going on with those people? They just love each other, they serve each other, they treat each other like royalty. Paul leads them to that in the opening part of chapter two. And then he says right after that, he says, oh, and by the way, the first person who thought like that was Jesus, and he has done that for you. 
He put your interest above his own interest, and he considered your needs more important than his needs, and he gave his life away. And oh, by the way, because he did that, you're going to be now called to do that for your community. And as we looked at last week, when you start doing that for each other, when you try to work out this salvation that's in you, that Jesus has put in you, you're going to grumble and you're going to complain. It's going to be hard. It's difficult. And so Paul is, is, he's said all that. This is what it means to be the beautiful community. Jesus did it for you first. And oh, by the way, it's going to be hard. You're going to grumble and complain when you do it. And so now when he gives this travel log and he says to them, hey, I'm sending you Timothy. I'm sending you Epaphroditus, which we'll talk about. He's trying to let them know it may sound impossible to be this kind of community. It may sound impossible to put other people's interest above your own, but I'm telling you it has been done. In fact, it's being done by people that you know. Timothy and Epaphroditus, they considered other people's interests ahead of their own. I'm giving you some examples to show you the kind of life and the kind of community I'm talking about with these men, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy is like a son to me. He's, he, he says, I don't know anyone like him. He loves like no one I've ever met. All he does is put other people's interests ahead of his own. I'm gonna send him to you. As soon as, as, soon as I'm kind of wrapped up here, I'm gonna tell him to come see you and take care of you and teach you and, and, and look after your own interests because he does this. Oh, and then Epaphroditus, you know Epaphroditus, Philippian church, you know how you know him? You sent him to me. Remember, months ago, you sent him to me with money and with gifts. When you heard I was in jail in Rome, you sent him to me to take care of me. And on the way here, he got sick and nearly died. And guess what he was worried about the moment he got sick and nearly died? He was worried about you. He was worried that you were going to be worried about him. And so he was, he was like, man, I, I, I don't want them to keep worrying about me. I don't, I don't want the Philippian church to worry about how their messenger is doing to Paul. And Paul says, it's been great to have him here. I'm sending him back to you, though, because I know you're worried sick about him. He's alive and he's well, and I want you, I want you to know that he's okay. Oh, and by the way, he's going to be carrying this letter. So the Philippian church gets this letter to the Philippians from Epaphroditus going back. So we're taking all that and we're going, okay, what Paul is talking about, this travel log, is very fitting with what Paul has been saying. Hey, church, I'm leading you guys to show deference to one another, to treat each other people like royalty, to love and serve one another, and to put other people's interests above your own, because that's what Jesus has done for you. Oh, and if you don't think it's possible, let me tell you about two men that have done that. They're doing it. I'm sending them to you because they're doing the very thing that I've been talking to you about in this whole chapter. So that's the travelogue. That's the, that's the 11 verses that we just read. That's what Paul is doing. He's using these two men as the example to show them what a beautiful community of serving others and treating other people like royalty and other people's interest above your own. So that's what's, that's what's going on in the travelogue. It fits. But something deeper is going on here too if we can use our redeemed imaginations and take ourselves into like the, the mind and heart of Paul, who was a real human being who just laid this out for them and for us. So think about Paul here. Paul loves, adores, cherishes, yearns for this Philippian church. A lot of biblical scholars would say the Philippian church was his favorite church plant. He planted dozens of churches, but these were his favorite people. He wants to go be with them. He's halfway across the world. He wants to know how they're doing. He wants to go embrace them. He wants to go teach them about Jesus. He wants to know how they're doing. He wants them to know how he's doing. He is missing these people, and yet he's sending these other two men to go and do his work. Can you imagine how hard it is for just a moment, how hard that might be for Paul to do? He is sending these two men to the church that he loves more than anything to do the very thing he wishes he could be doing. Paul is sending these men because he needs them. 
Paul is sending these men because the task that he's been given to do, he can't do on his own. Do you know how hard that is to do for us? Because here's what Paul is doing. He is embracing his limitations. <laughs> he, is, he is living into his reality, which is limited. He's in jail. He cannot care for this Philippian church the way that these other men do. Do you know how hard it is to do this to such a degree, embrace your limits to such a degree, you actually ask for help? You know what your needs are. You know what you've been called to do, and you also know your own limitations and your own finitude to be able to know, I can't do this, and I need someone to help me. He's sending these men because he knows he needs them, and what it appears to be is that he's actually really okay with admitting his needs and letting other people step into his needs. But on the other side of that coin, this, this is where it gets maybe even more painful or more convicting. Paul is sending these men to the Philippian church because he needs them. But guess, guess what he's also telling the Philippian church by sending these two very valuable men to Paul? He's saying, hey, I need these men to do my job and I'm embracing my limits. You also need these men though. You're not all put together. You need help. You need to be taught some things. You need to be shown some things. And I wish I could come do it. I can't do it. I have limits. I'm in a jail cell. I'm sending them to you because I need them. I'm also sending them to you because you need them. He's having the Philippian church embrace their limits too. You don't have it all together. You need someone to come and help you. And I'm very okay telling you that you have limits and you have needs. You have such limits and such needs. I'm sending you very valuable men to me. Did you hear what I said about Timothy? He's like a son to me. Did you hear what I said about Epaphroditus? Hey, Philippian church, you send Epaphroditus to care for me but I've been cared for now and I'm telling you that your needs are actually more important than my needs and he needs to come back to you. He's calling the Philippian church to step into their needs by saying, you can't do this without the help of these men and I can't do this without the help of these men. So here's what, here's what I wanna back up and, and, and take in as we, as we let this passage marinate in us this morning. Paul is embracing his own needs and his own limits and he's calling the Philippian church to do the same. Both things are happening. Both sides of the coin are happening. Paul's saying, I have needs and I'm willing to accept them and be okay with that. And you have needs, Philippian church, and you have things that you are not doing right and that you need help with. And I'm calling you to accept your own needs and your own limitations. This is biblical community. This is what it means to be a part of a body of believers. It's Paul saying to the Philippian church, to the Midtown church, that to be a community with other people, biblically speaking, means this. I have needs and you have needs. I need you and you need me. And only when both of those things are held at the same time can community happen. Can real, beautiful, true, biblical community happen. Guess what starts to happen when, when both things are on the table? I need you and you need me. I have needs and you have needs. And we're both coming to the table admitting that, that place. Really powerful things begin to happen. People are willing to go so far for the other person because what they also know is you would come the same length for me. Really powerful examples of sacrifice and laying lives down and having no limits on your love and having really healthy understandings of your own limitations and also being able to step into other people's needs. All of that happening, swirling together is biblical community. Really beautiful stuff gets to happen. You know how I know that? Look at what's going on with Paul. 
I want to put this in like really practical, factual terms for you. Think of the journey of Epaphroditus for just a moment. Epaphroditus has traveled from Philippi, northern Greece, to Rome to visit Paul. And he's brought with him tithes and offerings from the Philippian church, traveled across the Mediterranean, 800 miles. It's like walking from here to Washington, D.C. for one guy to go, hey, this guy, this is, this is, our, this is our, our father in the faith. He needs us. He's in jail. He's all alone. He needs, let's collect some money. Let's send him some gifts and some tithes. We need to step into that. And, and Epaphroditus goes, I'll go. Where do you need me to walk to? Rome? Great. Been meaning to go. Like he, he is so willing to lay his own life aside and take a journey across the Mediterranean for one guy. And then we're told, Paul just told us in this passage, hey, I know you heard this through the grapevine, but Epaphroditus got sick on the way over here and he almost died. And he got here and I started, and, I, and we prayed to God that God would heal him and God did. So this man was willing to travel, willing to suffer, almost died in service to Paul. And then, and this is, this is like, think about the humanity of this. I, we have no idea how long Epaphroditus was in Rome before the writing of this letter, but he gets better. Paul restores him to health. They, you know, they, he prays for God to heal him, and he does, and they're, they're joyful, and he's with Paul. He's, he's not letting Paul you know, be so lonely in jail, and then Paul says to him, hey, Epaphroditus, yeah, I know. I, I know what you just did for me. Thanks for that. Appreciate it, um, but the Philippian church, I can only imagine is worried sick about you. You got to go back, and he goes, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, what, what was that, Paul? I, you know, 800 miles on foot, and he goes, yeah, you need to go back because they're, they're, they're dying out of stress for you. Like, you need to go back and let them know you're okay. And, I, and oh, and by the way, take this letter to them that will encourage them. And Epaphroditus goes, okay. He walks 800 miles in one direction and then turns around and does the same thing to go back for the sake of the church in Philippi. Do you have someone who's willing to walk 800 miles for you? Let me ask you this way. Do you have someone that you would walk 800 miles for? Because that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. That's the kind of community when I have needs and you have needs. I need you and you need me. And when all of that, when there's a level ground where we all are needy and we're all broken and we all have needs that I, I have limits that I have to embrace, but so do you. And we get to step into each other's needs. This is what people do. When they catch the fire of this, biblically speaking, they go, there's no, there's no distance I wouldn't walk for you. I, I will travel across the known universe. I might even get sick and almost die. I'll journey through all by myself for you. And we hear that and we all go, God, I want to belong to a people like that. I, I want that in my life. Where, where is that community where people would, like, I can barely get people to, you know, walk up the street and meet me at tap room. Like, I can barely get people to, like, take an hour off and go, hey, can you want to, I'm lonely, you know, you want to. It's like, this dude is willing to walk across the Mediterranean, I'm sure he drank beer with Paul when he got there, okay? Like, I know. This is the kind of thing that people do. Where is it? Where is this? Why don't we have this kind of community? I need you and you need me. And when those two things are held in tandem together, precious kinds of things happen out of that place. Part of the problem is, is that we don't really know what community is. We've tried to do community just for community's sake, and community for community's sake is a really bad idea because people are messy and people are gonna hurt you, people are gonna betray you, people are gonna wound you and you're gonna wound other people. 
And at the end of the day, when I come to community just for community's sake, here's really what that means. I'm lonely, and I need you to fix that. The problem is, no amount of community can solve the issue of my loneliness. But when I do that, when I'm lonely, and I come to a community of people and say, make me feel not alone, make me feel not lonely anymore, here's what ends up happening. I'm only coming to the community saying this, I need you. I need you. I need you. And when there's only one side of this, when there's only the I need you, not the you need me, not when it's calling me into something for myself to give away and to be sacrificially loving you and putting your interest above my own, when I'm only in community for my sake, community to fix my needs, it's not community. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a Duke Divinity professor, former Duke Divinity professor, some people say he's the most quoted theologian in America, rightfully so, he's brilliant. He says this, you can't just make community up You can only discover that you need each other because you're in danger. We have plenty in our life that indicates that we are a people who are in danger and need help, but we numb it and ignore it, and we're not quite sure what the real dangers are. So here's what he's saying. Community gets built out of a place of mutual need, and that need comes from an awareness that we are in danger, real danger. But here's what ends up happening. We maybe know that subconsciously. Community comes when we're in real danger and we really need each other. But because we don't really know what the dangers are, we end up making the dangers up. And here's what I mean. We end up doing things like culture wars. So we can have a common enemy that we can just fake bind ourselves together and feel like we belong to something and feel the intimacy of something. But really we've made up an enemy to give us some fake intimacy. And so we, we, oh, we're in danger of, of the culture or the politics. And so whatever side you're on, I'm not, even, I'm not even picking sides. I'm just saying we end up creating dangers and creating enemies so that we can feel like we're fighting something and now we feel like we're united on something. When real biblical community is the commitment from every party that says, I'm actually in danger without you and you're in danger without me because guess what we are most in danger of? ourselves and so I need you and you need me because you're a threat to you and I'm a threat to me so I need you it's what's happening with Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and the Philippian church here this is what's going on in the travelogue Paul is saying I need these men I can't do this on my own and that's really hard to admit I need them I need them but here's also what he's saying you need them too You need me to send them to you. And Philippian church, that's hard to receive. I need you and you need me. That's what's happening with all of these parties. And you have the men here, Timothy, Paul, Epaphroditus, Philippian church, they knew the dangers they faced, like real dangers, and it was not Roman culture. (laughs) They were not battling Roman culture. Roman culture was actually trying to kill them. But Paul's not talking about that. He never talks about that in his letters. They're in danger of having their lives threatened, danger of being ostracized from their communities, danger of their own pride and vainglory, which we looked at a few weeks ago, the danger of their constant grumbling, which Paul addressed last week. Those are the real dangers. You're in danger. You're a danger to yourself. They know their need. And because every party knows their need and every party knows the real dangers, this is what's produced. They're they're willing to risk their lives for each other. True community, Stanley Hauerwas just told us, comes from a joined awareness that we are all in real danger. Therefore, we need each other. This is why we love the Avengers. 
If you haven't seen it, you're not a Christian. Because here's, here's, what, here's what, it is a real community. It's real community. Because here's what they're all saying. I've got gifts that you don't have. You've got gifts that I don't have. And one of the things that I know is true is there's, we are all in danger. Sure, we're in danger out there to Thanos and all that is real and there's darkness and there's evil and there's sin and there's sickness. But here's what they also all know. We can be a danger to ourselves here. We've got pride and we've got ego and we've got to call each other out and we need to keep each other sane because we are in danger. And so they all use their gifts for the common good. This realization that we are all in danger, this realization takes the pressure off of the community being built on my ability to convince myself that you're worth my time. Like do some, dance for me clown, like do something that makes me feel a certain way and if this community scratches all my itches and makes me feel a certain way all the time, then I'll give myself to it. That's how we come to community. But if community is built on the realization that I'm in danger and you're in danger and we need each other, now it's built on that and it gets its fuel for that fire by understanding that I'm always a threat to myself. I'm always a danger to myself and I know that about you too. I'm always more lonely than a community can heal. It doesn't mean that you don't need me and that we can't meet each other in that place. Here's what understanding that means. It means that I don't have to be lonely all alone. I know you're lonely too. Can we come together on that? Can we actually be together on that? Because you're a danger in your loneliness. You're a danger in your isolation and so am I. I'm always in danger and so are you. So now my commitment to the community comes from an awareness of my need and an awareness of the danger that I am in all the time. Not what's exciting to me in this season or what's the flavor of the month and what new things going on over here that I can maybe go and pull some stuff from. It actually produces like a lifelong commitment like these men. They're willing to do anything for the sake of the community. So what would we have to, to lose in order to gain more of the joy of living and loving in a beautiful community like that? What, what has Paul lost? What have these men lost that they might experience the joy, the deeper joy of a life in a community like this? These men have all lost their autonomy. And now we must lose our autonomy too if we're ever going to be and belong to a community like this. What is autonomy? Well, the word, auto, self, namas, law, self-law, self-government. The autonomous person creates his own value system and then establishes his own norms and laws and is subservient to the things that he or she has stated are the right rules for living and then is answerable and accountable only to self. That's what autonomy means, self-law, autonomous, self-governing law. And just FYI, all of us want that. This, this has been the problem with humanity since the Garden of Eden, that the original sin was a declaration of autonomy. I don't answer to anyone but me. I know what God said, and I think I could do it better. And so we have been wrestling with this original sin from the beginning. We all want to be autonomous. We all want to be self-law. We all want to give ourselves the law that we will obey. 
has been a problem since the beginning of humanity. It has gotten an injection of steroids since the Enlightenment, where now we think that our reason and our logic and our ability to understand makes us more qualified to give ourselves a law that we must subservient, be subservient to, but only a law that makes sense to me and only a law that I can reason with and understand, and then once I understand it, then I become my own king and ruler. And then in the last hundred or so years as the modern self has developed, and many philosophers have written about this, I'm not autonomous, I've learned a lot of this, okay? Many men smarter than me write about this. But here's, here's what uh, the, the quest for autonomy has become synonymous with, is the quest for authenticity. Authenticity for the modern self is synonymous with autonomy. And here's what authenticity looks like. And, and, and follow this with your enlightened mind for a moment, okay? Here's what it means. It means I'd, I've declared that I will not submit myself to herd morality. What the people say, what the institutions say, what the fundamentalists say, what my parents said, what they told me was right for me is oppressive. And I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna have the courage to get out from under that and declare my own autonomos, declare my own self-law. And I'll be the existential hero when I've decided that I have reached my own conclusions about what is best for me. And if anything threatens that, if anything comes up against that, anything uh, is, is a threat or a danger to me being able to declare what is best for me, then that would, me, that would be a threat to my authenticity. And authenticity is worshipped in our time. Be you. Don't let anybody tell you what is right for you. You get to decide what is best for you. Don't let anything infringe on your authentic self. We want our freedom. We want our rights. We want authenticity. And anything that might come against and wage war with uh, some other law other than the self-law threatens my authenticity and therefore my autonomy. But if you, if you back that, if you back the, like, the study of autonomy up one, one degree, you have to begin to understand that if I'm going to be autonoma, self-law, if I'm going to give myself a law, the thing that has to die first is any being above me that would, that would threaten that position. So the ultimate thing that I must kill first is God. God has to be off the throne, off the table, because he is a threat to my pretend rule. Because if he's got things for me that I don't agree with or don't make sense to me, or if he's got things for me that he calls me to submit to that I haven't agreed with, then he must die. He represents man's ultimate threat in the modern age, the existence of a God who could tell you what to do. That's inauthentic. I didn't discover that for myself. I didn't decide on that for myself. So again, short little history lesson of the modern self and modern psyche. All that to say all of that together, please understand this mindset. If that is how we live, which it is, all of us, if that is how we live, community is not an option. It's actually impossible to be a community in the biblical sense. Community the way the Bible describes it is impossible if we're all autonomous. And here, here's how that works. Because what community says is I need you and you need me. Can we find an intimacy here, a place of belonging here in mutual dependence? What autonomy says is I don't need you. I need me. I'm so happy to be a part of this community as long as you don't infringe on anything about my self-law that I've, I've deemed right and reasonable. And the longer I live in the, in the, in the illusion that I need you, like this, this is what is like 
almost traumatic for those of us, which is all of us, that would love to hold on to our autonomy and then we're told actually I need you and you need me and that's real community. When we, when we live in that, that idea, if we try to live that out, it becomes a massive threat to my authentic self. And so I'm, I'm terrified of actually admitting I need you and you need me because what if that's inauthentic? What, what, if, what, if, what if the community calls me to sanity in a way that I don't think is sane? What if the community wants to, give, wants to actually correct me or rebuke me or change me? Are they allowed to do that? No, that would be inauthentic. I believe that joining a community of mutual dependence will actually make me less free, less joy-filled. But biblical community the way that Paul models it here and is stepping into it here is this community of mutual dependence. Interdependence is what Paul's talking about here. I need these men, and you do too. But interdependence is the antithesis of autonomy, where we recognize the dangers all around us and all within us. And so we need each other. True community can only be born if there is a true, real understanding that we are in danger, and therefore we do need each other. And we have to also acknowledge that the biggest threat, the biggest danger to this community is me. I'm a threat to me. I'm not safe on my own. Isolation is not a good idea for any of us. Autonomy is deadly. And so what I have to realize is the thing I actually need you for the most is saving me from me. I'm not safe on my own, and neither are you. You need me too. Autonomy tells me that's not true. Autonomy wants me to keep claiming my rights, my freedoms, my authenticity. And Paul here would say, in true community, there is room for zero autonomy. You cannot belong to Jesus and hold on to your autonomy. It's not possible. What's ironic about it Maybe sad about it. Sometimes irony is sad, right? What's sad about this is that the gift of interdependence is actually the place where we get the most freedom. The gift of interdependence is where we get the most joy. The gift of mutual dependence is where we get the most sense of belonging. Like the thing we actually want to know and be known, to, to love and be loved. Like, I actually get to be with you in a shared mutual place of desperate need, and I get to belong to that place. Not the place that can make me never feel lonely again or fix all of my loneliness, but I know in a place that everybody has needs, in a place that everybody's broken, in a place that everybody is, is a danger to themselves, I can belong to that place. I could, I, could, I could lock arms with people who are just like me and belong to this circle, belong to this brotherhood, and belong to this body. James K. Smith, favorite living author, wrote the best book I've read in the last three years-ish. I'll buy it for you if you want it. Not all of you, but first 10, I'll buy it for you. Uh, he says this, this quote will be on the screen for the visual learners. He says this, what if my dependence is not something I resent, but something that I learn is the condition of my creaturehood? While this might be an affront to my autonomy, Perhaps it is my autonomy that is the source of my disease, not its solution. What if my dependence is a gift because it means I'm not alone? What if the welcome I experience here is how I learn to be human? 
what if my dependence is not something I resent, but something that I learn is a condition of my creaturehood? What if interdependence is how I started to put my autonomy to death? And I began to experience the bliss and the joy and the welcome and the belongingness of, dare I say, an authentic community. Like a, like a real community. Not the modern version of authenticity, but real, like an authentic place where we all belong because we all have the same needs and we're all a danger to ourselves. What if needing you and you needing me, both of those things, was the path to belonging to each other, the path to belonging to something bigger than myself? So if beautiful community is gonna be born, we have to lose our autonomy. So how do we do that? How would we begin to get on this path to belonging of an I need you and you need me type of community? Well, if you think Epaphroditus was impressive, if you think his journey across the Mediterranean for the sake of another was impressive, wait till you meet Jesus, who didn't just traverse across the Mediterranean, he traversed across the cosmos. And he didn't get sick and nearly die for the sake of love, he got betrayed and actually died for the sake of love. That Jesus, Jesus is the only person in history that had a right to be autonomous. He's the only person that is allowed to create his own self-law. He gave himself a law because he invented law. He, he, he is the highest being in the universe and so nothing is above him except him. And listen to the law that he gave himself, the one who could claim true autonomy. Listen to the law that he gave himself and he obeyed, the law of love the law of sacrifice, and the law of laying his life down for his friends. What, what the, Bible, the way the Bible puts this together is, is, is insane. Because here's what it says. It says that God is justice. God is righteous. God is just. And all that he does is just. And all that he does is righteous. What's their biblical synonyms? He, everything he does is a righteous act from the righteous place of being the highest being in the universe, the self-law, the autonomous law that he's given himself to enact, he always acts righteously in light of that. He always acts righteously in light of that justice, okay? He creates his own system of law, and because he is unchangeable, the universe is always being upheld because in his autonomous state, he is always doing what is righteous, okay? Got it? Now, here's what Romans says. Here's what the book of Romans collides God's autonomous, self-governing state. And here's what it says. Here's the law. Here's how it expresses his enacting of his own self-given law, his own self-given righteous actions. What he did from that place was sacrifice himself. Romans 3 says that the sacrifice of Jesus was a display of God's righteousness, was a display of God's justice, meaning he was obeying the law. Who gave him the law? He did. And the law that he gave himself was to give himself away for the sake of the other. It was righteous. It was in accord with the law that he upheld. It was righteous for him to die for his enemies. Jesus' autonomy is the best news you've ever heard. And Jesus' autonomy is the only thing that can set you free from yours. Because what was righteous to him 
was to give his life away for you. What was righteous to him, what was just to him, what he decided to obey was the law of sacrifice. Why did he do it? Because he knew that his community was in danger. We were in danger of the justice of God pulverizing, pulverizing us, which we absolutely deserved, and he interceded for the justice of God. We were in danger of living a fully autonomous life, which by the way, do you know, because he interceded for that, because he interrupted that, because he saved us from the danger we were in, the danger of living a fully autonomous life, do you know that's one of the ways the Bible describes the wrath of God? is giving you over to yourself and not stopping it. It's terrifying to think that one of the things that God could do is this. And guess where you would end up? Hell. Because you won't ever choose anything but you left to yourself. And Jesus says, you were in danger of that. And I won't let you keep living just a fully autonomous life. I'm going to interrupt that for your sake. We were in danger of drowning in a meaningless existence. And Jesus said, I'm actually here to save you from that because left to yourself, left to your own autonomy, everything you do will be meaningless and futile. We were in danger of suffocating under the weight of sorrow and suffering. We can't make sense of suffering and there's no salve for the wounds and the pain. And Jesus says, I'll actually die to redeem the pain. All that danger in thousands of more places. Jesus saw the dangers of the community that he loved and he stepped into it because of their need. And like a true member of a community, he saw the dangers and he interceded for them at great cost to himself because that's what a community does. They see the dangers and at great cost to themselves, they are willing to intercede for the other. And when you and I see the love and justice of God doing that for us, you will lose your grip on your autonomy. It's his autonomy that saved you. So you won't want to hold on to yours as much. And real community starts to form. Real, beautiful community starts to form because you will find others in this place that say to you, my Jesus knew what danger I was in. And my Jesus knew what danger you were in. And we share in that need and we share in that danger and he traveled across the cosmos to save me from it. Want to join us? And here's what he says to you after, after saving you. Here's what he says to you. And it is a little bit like a, a jolt to the pride, but I hope you hear it like an invitation to freedom. Here's what he says to us in the book of 1 Corinthians when talking about this idea. This is what he says. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to you. Jesus says, you belong to me. He's saving you from your own, your own autonomy by saying, you actually don't, you are not in charge of you. I am. And look at what I do for people in my community that need me. Look at, look at, how I, look at where I rule from. Look at how I give of myself. Look at how I inter, interpose myself. Look at how I save my brothers and sisters from danger. You're not your own. You belong to him. And so if that's true, I don't have to be afraid to admit my need to you. I also don't have to be afraid to admit that you need me. Because we both need Jesus desperately. And in that place of mutual need, in that place of mutual dependence, we become a place of belonging where we together belong to Jesus. Let's pray. 
Jesus, would you, would you make, um, would you mercifully make it so that we would loosen our grip on our autonomy because we belong to the truly autonomous one who gave himself for us. Would the, would the picture of your beauty, would the, would the righteous act, acting of our God melt our autonomous selves? Would it, would it make in us a place where we belong here in such a way that we offer ourselves mutually in need to each other? Save us from ourselves, Jesus. We love you in your name. Amen.